Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, thank you, worship band. Um, it's definitely very encouraging to be pointing to the Lord through song that way and very grateful for your ministry. I'm very grateful for the invitation to be with you uh, to worship and serve the Lord this morning. Um, definitely an honor to be flown across the country, you know, and you guys don't know me, so <laughs> um, to be invited is, is definitely an honor and uh, very happy to be with you. You should know that um, we know a little bit about you guys and you know, Brian, uh, he's uh, my pastor, he's Pastor Brian, he's been with you, here with you guys a number of times, and, and uh, he's kept us up to date on the things that are going, and we just want you to know that um, we love you as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, of course, as a, a fellow church in the Five Stone Network, and we've been praying for you for many months, and, um, and just, you know, based on the promises of God's Word, we know that uh, he's going to continue to use this church in powerful ways in this community, so very, very happy to step in and just be a very, very small part of everything that God's doing in your community. So again, thank you for the invitation. Um, let me just open again in, in uh, this message and, and just talking to God really quick and asking his, his uh, blessing on this ministry this morning. Our Father, um, we, I just confess again, and, and this sticks out to me from the worship, that your love is better than life. You are the most important one in this room this morning. And so Lord, in all the speaking I do, um, ultimately, would it be you that is speaking to our hearts, deepen our faith, increase our love, Lord, raise our view of you, our beautiful and awesome God. It's in your son Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, um, let me begin this way. Um, I, I actually have a colleague who helps direct the outreach efforts of crew in North Africa and the Middle East, and they reach Muslims in, uh, throughout that area. And over the decades, he's actually lived in a number of different countries because when the governments find out about what he's doing there, he inevitably gets driven out. And at a conference a few years ago in the States, he spoke to us about how, though in recent years, and of course the, the, the wars are winding down now and troops are withdrawing from the, our troops are withdrawing from the Middle East, but he talked about how uh, in, in the years before that, in recent years, as tragic as the wars were that were, were happening in many of those, those countries and the conflicts, they had opened doors for the gospel in many surprising ways. And he would describe how when you have a country at war, the Islamic governments, they stop caring about what Christians are doing because armed insurgents with guns are a far bigger problem than, you know, humble Christians carrying around Bibles and, and Bible study materials. And so his teams were able to move with relative ease and share the message of God's love with thousands of people who would have been virtually inaccessible in kind of normal peacetime. And he, and he had this saying, and he wanted to really impress this on us. He said, the, you've got to understand, the world's calamities, as bad as they seem, they're God's opportunities. The world's calamities are God's opportunities. Well, I'm hearing from him, and I'm thinking, I don't know, bro, like, yeah, wars make it easier in one sense, I guess, to do your work because you can actually get the gospel to people, but to get the gospel to people, you have to go into the middle of a war. Like, is that really any easier? Is, is this really an improvement here? But, but the way he spoke about it, it was so laser-focused on the opportunity that was being created for the gospel. And, and, there, and he was, you could tell his voice and his heart was filled with so much compassionate urgency because in a war, people are dying. 
and going into eternity, many, many never having an opportunity to hear about Christ. And so it was almost as if that, the, the fact of the danger of, of wars had just never occurred to him. We're just, we can have an open door, let's go in now. He was focused not on the problem of war, but on the power of God to work even in a terrible situation like war. And he said again and again, the world's calamities are God's opportunities. This is the faith-filled way that Christians need to approach the world and what's going on. And and he would say that again and again, and I would think, well, okay. It's it's, it's hard to think that way sometimes, but what a radically faith-filled way to approach everything. But then he said this. He said he was afraid... He was fearful of one thing. And I wrote this quote down verbatim from his teaching. He said, I am scared to death to work with anyone who is not in the word on a daily basis. And this was his explanation. He says, your courage will be measured by your view of Jesus. Your fear will be a measure of of how much you take the problems that you have and exaggerate them. And he says, for most of us in, in the sinful life, we, we just don't view problems as they ought to be viewed. We just never view problems as they, as they truly are. And the, and the idea he's meaning to get across is that when, when you really get a clear sight of Christ, when you really see him for who he is, his limitless power, his unimpeachable wisdom, his faithful love, his perfect plan, Problems, in a sense, they just stop being problems. You suddenly see them for what they are. They're they're opportunities to see God in action. And his fear of working with people that aren't in the Bible daily, it was an admission that 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 kind of courage doesn't come easily, not not to him, not to anyone. It's not natural. It's not a part of our, 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 our fallen nature. It has to be, it has to come from somewhere external to us. His fear of working with people who aren't in the Word, it was an admission that his own courage could be fragile and and susceptible to voices of unbelief around him. And it was an an admission that his own courage, therefore, had to be constantly renewed from his own personal daily focus on the truth, but also from participation in in a community of believers that can lift each other up in moments of stumbling and keep pointing to to, uh, each other to Jesus again and again and again and again as the battle against unbelief and fear requires. Okay, without that kind of devotion to get it, to renewing your, your courage and faith each day, without that kind of community that can lift you up when you stumble, you just don't go into war zones with the gospel because that's the only time those people are reachable. You just, you just don't do it. And so he was, he was very eager to, have, to be surrounded by men and women who, who were fighting to renew faith daily. Now, this is something we all struggle with. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or non-Christian, when, 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 and it doesn't matter whether we're facing problems in life or in ministry. We are all susceptible to being bullied by fear. And yet, we need to find some way to do the things that need to be done. We need to find some way to speak truth when it's unpopular. We need to find some way to resist injustice when we know it's inevitably going to bring retribution, to move towards people in love when relationships are strained and you're not quite sure how people are going to respond to you when you initiate with them. We need courage in our marriages. We need courage in our parenting, in the classroom and at work. Like We all want to be fearless because we need to be in so many options, but courage is elusive. And so if you're a Christian here today, um, you know, my prayer for you is these simple reminders from, from Scripture would nudge your heart towards deeper faith in the God who gives his people courage. If you're not a Christian here this morning, 
Um, you know, I didn't know if, uh, you know, who would be invited this morning, but if, if, if you're here because a, a friend or a family member um, invited you or you're, just, you're here because you're curious and, and want to learn more about um, Christianity or see what church is like, or if you're growing up in the church here at Vanguard and, and, and you're still trying to figure out what you believe personally, well, let me just first of all say we're, we're very glad you're here, and I'm sure I can speak for everyone um, that, uh, that, that we're, we love that you've joined us with, uh, for worship this morning, but I want to say this message is for you too, okay? If you're not a believer, then I understand that the God that we're talking about this morning, he's still a question mark for you. But, but here's my invitation to you. Would you be willing to hear what I'm saying this morning with, with that genuine curiosity that asks the question, what if it's true, though? Like, what if it's true? What if there is a God who gives his followers courage that's based on real hope in the context of an actual love relationship, and it's available to anyone who seeks it free of charge? Okay. At that point, you, <laughs> I realize you may be saying to yourself, Oh, come on, like, you know, don't tell me you're going to teach that you have to be a Christian to be a truly courageous person. There are plenty of courageous people who don't have anything to do with God. Sure, like, I admit that. But I would invite you to think about it a little bit more deeply and examine where courage often comes from, where courage often finds its source, okay? And this would be good for us as Christians as well, for you, in the, for, for you here that are believers. Just because we're believers doesn't mean we're exempt from slipping into patterns of fighting fear that are frankly worldly and have nothing to do with Jesus. For example, um, there are bold people out there who, uh, they'll say anything, they'll say anything, and they'll write anything on social media uh, that, they're, that they're passionate about. They'll say anything. And you might see that and say, wow, <laughs> Like, look at the way they stand for their principles. They're not concerned at all with who they offend. They're courageous. Okay. Is it courage? Is it courage, though? Or might it be that in some cases, they don't care about offending people because they don't care about people? I mean, you know this type of person. They love being right far more then they love the people they're happy to do battle with, right? And so they'll, they'll run their mouths. And, it, and, it, and in one sense, it may look courageous, but there has got to be a better source of courage than the courage that flows from lovelessness towards others. Or think about adrenaline junkies. I mean, you have people base jumping in wingsuits, free soloing rock walls just, just up the you know, state in El Capitan famously, weaving through traffic on superbikes. Fisher and I encountered a number of those on the, the 405 on the way up here. I mean, have, have you ever listened closely to the interviews of these people? And I love, I love going on YouTube and watching that stuff, and I love listening to their interviews. I'm, but I'm shocked. I am shocked at how many of these often courageous people, they, they, they say something like, you know, when I'm climbing or when I'm flying, when I'm riding, it's the only time I feel alive. It's the only time I feel free. It's the only time I, I really feel like me. In other words, you know, read, think, dig into that statement, right? In other words, when they're not being quote-unquote courageous, they're, they're being vulnerable here. They're, they're telling us, I feel dead inside. I feel like I'm in bondage. 
I'm disoriented about who I am or, or why I matter at all. Okay, and so they're driven to, to, to these pursuits with just for a fleeting moment, make, make them feel something good. And so there, again, I, I say there's gotta be a better source of courage than the desperate drive to escape internal misery. Or think about people who are hurting and in pain. Lose, you lose a love, loved one, you get a bad health diagnosis, a rebellious child uh, is endangering themselves, you have a job loss, a broken relationship. In the midst of pain, especially in the midst of pain, courage can be so elusive. But, but what are hurting people so often told? Don't worry, it'll, it'll all turn out for good in the end. Will it? Your loved one's in a better place. Are they? You know, the things you're going through now, it'll make you stronger in the end. How do you know? How do you know? If there's not a God who's already seen the future and therefore can make promises about the future, like, don't we have to conclude that so much of the courage we try to inspire in each other is based on utterly naive optimism? It's based on ignorance. There's got to be a better source of courage than ignorance. Think about perfectionists. For example, there are, there are TikTok stars. I guess I'm speaking to you younger people now. The older people have no idea what I'm talking about. There are TikTok stars who post content filled with bold and, and crazy antics. And you might think to yourself, wow, I would never be courageous enough to film myself doing that and put it out to the world. They must be fearless. But if you were to go behind the scenes, you discover the only reason they dare make their antics public in the way that they do is because they have spent a ton of time in, in front of the mirror getting themselves prettied up, countless, countless takes, get, getting everything just right, hours of editing, perfectly manicuring every aspect of the video until it's flawless. Okay? I mean, it does take courage to get out in front of people or to get up on a stage. I, I teach guitar here and there, and I'll tell my students, you learn a piece, if you can play it, five times in a row with no mistakes. In, in my book, you're good to go. Get up and lead worship. Uh, you know, get up and do your recital, whatever. But I remember reading the interview of a jazz musician who would not play something publicly until he could play it flawlessly all the way through 125 times in a row, no mistakes. He was obsessive. And at that point, is it, is it really courage anymore? Is it really courage anymore? There's got to be a better source of courage than, than the desperate obsessiveness of, of perfectionistic and, and controlling people, if for no other reason, that, then there are very few areas of life that you can rehearse for like that, okay? You simply cannot control your life and the circumstances in your life like you can control the content of a 60-second TikTok video. It used to be 15 seconds, and I think they're bumping it up to three minutes here coming shortly, but you just can't rehearse for life like that. And so here's, the, here's the, the hope for this morning. Can we discover from the Word of God a distinctively Christian source of courage, a source of courage that isn't emboldened by lovelessness or driven by misery or grasped for in ignorance or compulsively obsessed over, but, but based on something absolutely beautiful and, and rock solid? Okay, so that's, that's what we're after this morning. Well, everything we're talking about is, was certainly a, a, an issue for the community of God's people that we're going to read about from the Scriptures. And so let me set up the text, um, and, and while I'm doing this, feel free to open to Deuteronomy 1, and you can uh, follow along there. I didn't send any slides ahead, so the, the text is not going to be up there. Um, you can listen, or you can follow along. Um, 
I neglected to ask Gordon what translation you use. We use, at CBC, we use NIV, so I, I believe that's what I have here in my text. Um, but um, let me set up this text. So what we're going to read is part of a speech given by the prophet Moses just before the people move into the land that God promised to them hundreds of years before this speech. Okay, when this speech was given, a few million Israelites had just finished 40 years of, of, of wandering around in the wilderness as discipline for their fear and disobedience 40 years ago, the first time they tried to enter the land. And so in this speech, you're going to see Moses speaking about what happened 40 years ago, reminding them of their past failure so that it's not repeated again, and highlighting in some beautiful ways, that we're, that that's where we're really going to focus today. Um, it's a big passage. We're just going to pick a few, few texts out that really highlight God's continued goodness to them and his trustworthiness. Okay? So, you know, in each of these things is important. Remember what my colleague said, courage is the measure of your view of Jesus, fear is the measure of how you magnify problems. So look for those two things in the text. Look for how the rank-and-file Israelite magnified the problem, and look for how Moses tries to refocus them on God. And I think you'll be, if you you can see those two things in the text, you're getting a pretty good idea of what this text is all about, okay? So let's uh, start in verse 19. "As As the Lord our God commanded us, Moses writes, We set out from Horeb and went to the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Okay, now a couple of geography things here. Horeb was the uh, rallying point for the Israelites after the miraculous salvation they experienced in the Exodus where they received the law and, and, and God officially adopted them as his covenant people. God marched them from that point to Kadesh Barnea, a point on the southern border of Israel on the southern border of the promised land, and that, that's where they failed to, to enter the promised land, as we'll see. So, so they make this, this short journey after the Exodus, and, and Moses continues, verse 20, and I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of our ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came back to me and said, well, let's, uh, let us send uh, men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we're to take and the towns that we'll come to. The idea seemed good to me. So I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and, and came to the Valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord our God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They they say the people are stronger and taller than we are. Their cities are large with walls up to the sky. And we even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You saw it. 
and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on the journey in a, in a fire by night and a cloud by day to search out the places for you to camp and show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation sh shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. Except Caleb, son of Jephune. Uh, he will see it, and I will give it to him and his descendants, the land that he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. It's, it's, a, it's a tragic story, but it was, it was calculated at the time Moses gave it, to make sure history wasn't repeated. And so here's how I want to approach the text. I'm going to give you three encouragements from the text to walk by faith and not fear. Three ways that we see in this passage that God works for his people to give them courage. Okay, but, but before that, it, it might be helpful for you just, to, you know, if you're taking notes, just to jot down and, and take a, a, just a pause before the Lord and say, Lord, where are you asking me uh, to be courageous? Maybe, maybe God wants to put his finger on something in your life or ministry. Um, that you can uh, meditate on in the midst of this, this examination of this text, which will hopefully, hopefully be encouraging to your soul. What is God asking you uh, today that requires courage? Okay, well, first, the Lord swears. The Lord swears and seals oaths in blood covenants in confirmation of his promises. Okay, we saw that in verse 35. Look at verse 35 again. The, the, the Lord swore to give the land of Canaan to the Israelites. That ought to have been an, a great source of, of, of encouragement and courage for the people. It was to Caleb. And the, the reality is God has made us a lot of promises. And those promises ought to give us incredible courage. He said to us things like, God works, Romans 8 now, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Okay. In other words, in, in every fearful situation, we know, according to that promise, it will work out for the Christian in the long run. He has said, for example, James 1, trials will make you mature and complete. Okay, in other words, Every fearful situation we face as Christians, it actually can make us stronger according to the promises of God, God's word. And so you see what we're saying? Words, the very same words that are sort of vain platitudes in the mouth of well-wishing unbelievers become anchors for the souls of the Christians who understand that God is faithful. He makes us promises, but on, but on top of that, he swears that his promises will never fail for us, Okay. He confirms his, his promises, swearing oaths to us. And this is incredible. It's incredible because it's shocking. Well, it's, it's, uh, first, it's incredible because it, 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 it's, it's a beautiful gesture of God to, to sinful, slow-to-believe hearts that would, that would encourage us along the path of faith. But, it, but it's, it's more incredible because it, it's shocking. God's a God who can't lie. We sang a minute ago, Jesus, you are the truth, right? John 14, 6 was, was part of that song, right? He's a God who can't lie. He's the one uniquely that should never have to make an oath, would never has to have to say, no, I swear I'm going to do it. 
He's the, he's the one that should never have to uh, uh, do anything like that. We have to make oaths because people are untrustworthy, but not God. I remember hearing um, some teaching about parenting that stuck with me, and, and this, is, this is relevant to this passage since God is pictured as, as the father who carries us, I think. But, but, so this teacher, he challenged us, if you tell your kids you're going to do something, and you ever find them saying in response, Dad, Mom, like, do you really mean it? Or, or, or Dad, Mom, do you promise? Or even, Dad, Mom, like, do you swear you're going to do that? Like, it's possible that they're invoking, uh, you know, you to, to swear about it or to make an oath about it or to make a, a solemn promise about it because somewhere in the past you've sown seeds of suspicion and doubt in your children by, by failing to do what you told them you'd do in the past. And so this teacher, he challenged us, as parents, be so careful to do everything you say to your children that solemn uh, promises and oath-taking are completely unnecessary in, in, in your parenting. Let your yes be yes. Okay, we're sinful people. I'm a sinful dad, right? We, ask, you can ask Fisher about the computer that I told him he, he, that I was going to fix. Dad, will you help me fix my computer? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. A week later, Dad, can, can you really help me fix my computer this weekend? Yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. Months later, it's, it's fixed now. So we've, we've repaired that situation. But right, but of necessity, my children resort to oath-taking at times because at times I'm a careless father, but not God, Never God. Yet, he swears to us what he promises to guarantee our slow-to-believe hearts that he is faithful to us. Okay, and so I guess my question is, does it, does it do anything for you, you to hear it this way? Does it stir your heart or kind of stir your soul and in, in, in any way? Just be reminded that God swears to you. doesn't swear at you. He swears to you, Okay. For example, he's not just saying, I promise to love you. He does say that, but it's much more than that. And as Christians, we need to hear the voice of our Heavenly Father this way. He's saying, my child, I swear to you, I will always love you because by the blood of my firstborn, everything unlovely was removed from you and by his righteousness which clothes you, I adore you with all my infinite affection. I swear to you, my love. That's how God speaks to us. And so number one, we, we need to have courage because God is, is faithful to his people. He swears it. Second, the Lord carries us. So let's bump back up a bit and examine uh, verse 29 and following. Moses writes, I said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you. Uh, as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as the father carries the son all the way uh, you went until you reached this place. And this is, a, this is a marvelous picture. If you're a Christian, you are in your father's arms. That is your objective, true, real situation. That is where you are right now, in the arms of your mighty heavenly father. And that ought not be a fearful place. Okay. The, the Israelites had to travel through this barren wilderness. It wasn't fun. 
but they had the assurance, which was constantly being reconfirmed, that no matter what happened, you're in the arms of God. He's, he's going to care for you. We have the same confidence as children of God. We are in God's arms. We are being carried toward the fulfillment of all God's promises to us. And while in his arms, he, he will let nothing befall us that threatens the fulfillment of those promises. Okay? And the illustration here is it's not an adolescent or a grown child like you know, Fisher here or some of the you other young people. The picture here is of a small child, a baby perhaps, the, the size of child that can easily be carried around in its father's arms for long distances. Okay? And that's instructive because babies are the most vulnerable humans. Little children are least able to help themselves. And in the face of fearful situations, that's how we feel. Like, don't, don't we feel powerless to help ourselves? Uh, we're almost reduced to like a baby-like state in, in certain fearful situations. That was certainly the experience of the Israelites over and over again. In the face of Pharaoh's army, powerless. In the face of the threat of starvation and dehydration in the, in the endless wilderness, powerless. Uh, in, um, in the face of the entrenched might of the Amorites who occupied the Promised Land, they felt powerless, okay? The point is, and this is why this is instructive to consider the, the type of child he's talking about here, the point is, it's fine to be powerless if you're in the arms of the infinitely powerful God. The picture invites us to consider that no matter how limited or small or even sinful we are, God is in no way curtailed in his ability to fulfill his merciful designs towards those he's promised to carry in love. I remember um, one night as a young dad, uh, Fisher was still a baby, being, still being breastfed. And my, and my wife's, my wife, Melanie, I wish you could have met her. It would have been fun to bring the whole family, but um, my wife's an absolute rock star. She would handle all the night feedings herself. And she rarely asked me to get up in the middle of the night when Fisher would cry out for in hunger. So after a while, I, w I wouldn't even wake up during those, um, those night you know, sessions when, when Fisher would cry and, and wake her up. And this went on for months. I just slept through it all. Well, um, our first crib was a hand-me-down uh, that was in great shape, um, or, so, uh, or so we thought. And so every night we'd deposit Fisher in the crib, in the nursery, uh, the room that we'd set apart for the nursery, and we'd, we'd make our way to bed eventually. And uh, well, one night, in the middle of the night, I, I, I bolted awake. And I th instantly threw the covers off, jumped over Melanie, who was still sleeping in bed, sprinted to the nursery, flipped on the lights, scanned the, the crib for my son, and, I, and he wasn't there. And um, I couldn't see him, but I could hear him. And he, and he was screaming. I dropped to my knees, and I dragged him out from underneath the crib, scooping him up into my arms to, to comfort him in his terror. Okay? We later determined that um, one side of the bottom of the crib had just given away, and, and, and so he, uh, you know, he rolled down the now-sloped surface, bounced off the wall, and then rolled back under, underneath the crib. And um, no idea how that happened. It looked like a perfectly fine crib, but it wasn't. Well, you know, I'm holding Fisher. He's, I'm trying to comfort him in, in his crying. A minute later, my confused wife joins me in the nursery, and, and, and I explained what happened to her, and she asked me, like, how did you know he needed you? Like, you don't usually wake up when he cries. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. On reflection, I, you know, I realized there, there must have been some tiny different inflection in his cry indicating terror and not hunger. 
that, that roused my fatherly instinct to get him into my arms as fast as possible and comfort him, right? And, and, and I remember that often, and I, and I think about my Heavenly Father pursuing me that way, ready in an instant to jump into action. If even sinful human fathers sometimes care well for their children, how much more our Heavenly Father? Okay, if you're His child, this is what's beautiful about what the passage says, He doesn't even need to find you. He never lost you. He doesn't need to, to scoop you up as if you were sitting there by yourself alone. You're already in the arms of your Father. So have courage there. Third, um, Moses wrote, uh, the Lord your God, so we're in, we're in uh, verse 30, 31 now. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. God is fighting for us. God is fighting for us. That, that doesn't mean that we don't fight. The Israelites still had to go to war to displace the you know, evil, wicked, violent cultures that occupied the land that God had promised them. The Israelites still had to go to war, but in their fighting, God was fighting. And I think it's very tempting for us to feel like we're alone in our battles, especially when the circumstances are fearful ones. We all hate being in, in desperate situations. But going back to the opening point, I think one of the reasons we are so willing to classify certain problems as desperate is because we're magnifying the problems and forgetting our faithful, fighting Father. And, and we've all been in those situations where things seem utterly hopeless, and the only thing left to say is, I don't know. I mean, unless God himself shows up and does something here, it's all over. But what if the theology of this passage shaped how we viewed these types of situations? Okay. In that case, we would never say it's hopeless now unless God does something as if he weren't already doing something. Okay? God is always fighting. In every arena of our lives that we step into, that's a place that God has already entered. Remember what the text says, God goes before you. In desperate situations, what we ought to say is not, you know, nothing's going to happen unless God does it. What we, what we should say in desperate situation is, I know by faith and from the authority of Scripture, God is doing something here already. He's at work here guaranteed. I may not know how to understand what he's doing right now, but, but I know as his people, he's fighting for us. He is fighting for us. And therefore, whatever comes, I'm going to have courage. I have to have courage. I've got to trust the Lord and have courage. One of my students I mentor and disciple in my ministry with crew recently faced a fearful situation over the, the past year. And I want to tell you his story because I think it illustrates what, what this can look like in an in a everyday situation. I think it'll encourage you to know that God is fighting even in those places where it's most difficult to believe he's at work. Um, so this is a University of Michigan student. He just finished his sophomore year. He'll be a junior next year. His name's Zach. And... Um, <clears throat> And he's in the uh, Michigan Music Theater School. He's a great actor. He's got a beautiful voice. 
Um, the College Gazette ranks the U of M uh, music theater program as number one in the country. So it's, it's an elite program. Um, only about 28 to 24 kids get into it every year. But it has the reputation for harboring a culture that is not friendly to Christians. Not friendly at all. Uh, he once told me, my freshman year, I knew of a senior named James. James is a Christian. His, James's fresh, freshman year, when people in the theater school found out he was a believer, they gave him the nickname Homophobe James. And he, he was a humble and kind Christian kid that did nothing to deserve that sort of continual ridicule other than having people find out that he believed in God and believed in the Bible. And then that, that nickname stuck through his entire college career. So James is a senior now. Zach shows up as a freshman, and, 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 he, and he hears people calling James homophobe James behind his back and, and ridiculing him. Zach said, Zach told me, it, it, it is so scary for me to think that I could be singled out for ridicule like James was just, just for my faith in Jesus. But, the, but as, you know, as we worked together, as we got in the Word, he said at this one point, he said, but the Lord has convinced me music theater is not just my major. God has me here on purpose. Just like he led the Israelites by fire and, and cloud to the specific points where he, he always wanted them, where he was caring for them on their journey. Zach knew that God had led him to the, the music theater school. This is not just my major, it's my mission field. I know God is at work there. So every day, even if I feel powerless, even if I don't feel like I can do much, I, I just need to trust him. I need to find ways to trust him with the little things that make God look good and, and not be ashamed of Jesus. And so he would do the little things. He, did, he never did anything big. He would just do the little things like get his Bible out before class started and read a verse or two silently in full view of his other classmates around him. Or, or he would bow his head and pray before a meal. And, and he would just be kind to his, his classmates. He would work to try and build friendships with his classmates, just these little things. He would say encouraging things to them if they had a good performance. Or, you know, and he was, he was just generally a caring person. Little things. Well, word got around that Zach was a Christian. Everybody knew that he was the, Christ, the one Christian guy there. Well, before long, a girl, Stephanie, came to him who was loosely raised in kind of a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, um, health, wealth, and prosperity tradition. Well, she was miserable. And, and her faith couldn't help her in her depression and anxiety because she couldn't seem to muster the power to speak into existence her best life now like some of these health and wealth gurus you know, teach as possible. She just couldn't do it. She couldn't get it to work. And so she was despairing. But she, she saw Zach, his joy, his love, the way he treated people, and, and she thought to herself, maybe he knows something about following Jesus that I don't know. Maybe his, maybe his Christianity isn't like mine. I, I've, I've got to talk to him. And, 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 uh, and she asked him, like, do you know something about Christianity I don't? Well, it turns out Zach did. He knew the gospel. And he shared Christ with her, and she believed. And she asked, well, can, can I start coming to church with you? And it was pandemic time, so Zach had been watching online. And, uh, and so he said, well, sure, yeah, we could, we could go to church. Um, but if we want to go in person, we have to borrow a car. Uh, you know, I don't, have a, I don't have a car on campus. And so um, I, I know I'm going to ask JT. Uh, let's see if we can borrow his car. Now, JT um, is an atheist. Well, I should say was an atheist. Um, and so Zach goes to, to Zach, or sorry, Zach goes to JT and says, hey, um, 
Stephanie and I uh, want to go to church this Sunday, and I was wondering, well, before he could finish asking to borrow the car, JT just cut him off and said, oh yeah, I'd love to go to church with you guys. Like, I, I, I've been wondering, like, what do Christians believe? Like, what, what is this all about? Can I, uh, yeah, I'll drive. How about I drive, right? And so Zach was embarrassed because he, he never even considered asking JT to join him at church. He had just invited himself, but he was, he, he was praising the Lord. Okay, <laughs> you're coming with, we're all going together, you're coming with us. Well, the three of them started going to church every week. Not long after, one of Zach's housemates, another theater student, came to Zach. His name was Austin and started asking questions about the parable of the prodigal son. He had to memorize the parable for um, a role that he had gotten in the irreverent 70s musical Godspell. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen that or know anything about it. It's loosely based on the, um, the Gospel of, of Matthew. Not theologically correct, however. Um, but, but part of his lines were the, full, were the parable of the prodigal son. For, so, so for weeks... And months even, Austin had been reading, reciting, and dr- uh, dramatizing the words of Jesus for his you know, music theater curriculum. And, and he, it finally hit him. He realized, you know what? I have no idea what the deeper significance of, of any of this is. I know. I, I, I know a Christian. I'm going to go ask Zach. Well, he came to Zach. They opened the scriptures together, dug into the, the gospel of Luke. And, and from the parable of the prodigal son, Zach was able to to share Christ with Austin. And he was shocked. He was like, I had, I had no idea this is what Christians believed. C- can I come to church with you guys? Yes, yes you can, okay? So, so now four of them are, are going to church together. Um, eventually, Austin put his faith in Christ. And I, and I can remember the day Zach went out and bought this giant, like, $50 study Bible, and he was so excited to, to give it to Austin so that he could, you know, start doing his daily devotions and actually kind of understand what he's, what he's reading. And, and, um, and so it was so fun to see uh, Zach's joy for his, his uh, friend's new relationship with God. Well, and, and so they're all going to church together. Then Zach's atheist housemate, on campus there's one giant house that, that houses like a whole bunch of the music theater kids. They all, they all get going on this house together. So one, one of the other housemates who's, who's there, he, uh, he begins trying to date this, this other Christian girl on, on campus named Annika. But of course, Annika's um, more interested in taking him to Bible study than going out on the town. And so frustrated that he wasn't getting, getting anywhere with her, he, he figures, you know what, I should, I should ask Zach about Annika. Maybe he can explain to me um, why this Christian girl won't take the relationship forward. And so Zach told him, <laughs> I, mean, like, just, I mean, it's just wonderful. Zach told him, well, if you want to understand where Annika's uh, coming from, you have to understand the gospel. And so, and, and so this guy Chris says, well, okay, teach me the gospel then. And, and Zach did, right? And, and Chris was so intrigued about Christianity, he says, can I start coming to church with you guys? And, and, and they're like, yeah, but we're going to need another car. So they found another atheist who, who, who was driving. So seven music theater students, uh, one-third of the University of Michigan music theater class of 2023 is going to church and getting into weekly evangelistic Bible studies simply because Zach said, gosh, I can't be afraid when I go to class today. Okay? But, but it's not really Zach, Right? Zach did nothing. He, he, he just kind of went along for the ride. How did this happen? God went before him. God was fighting. 
He was working in that place long before Zach showed up. I mean, how many, how many hundreds of, of prayers do you think poor, ridiculed James said on behalf of that community before Zach ever showed up? I got to believe that, that, that James's difficult and fruitless ministry, quote-unquote fruitless, but, but likely filled with prayers for that community, opened the door and, 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 and you know, focused the attention of God on that place, right? God was there before Zach. He was, sure, he was even there before James. He was working. He was fighting. All right, let me close with two applications. Um, if, you, if you're not a believer, like, like, what do you think about all this? Like, would you agree that if there is an almighty God who's, who, who is faithful and never breaks his promises to his people, and he carries his people with a perfectly father, fatherly love, and he's always going ahead of them to fight for them, like, wouldn't that be an awesome source of courage? Okay, wouldn't it be a source of courage infinitely superior to lovelessness and misery and ignorance and perfectionism that, that prop up, uh, you know, the thin facade of courage that we see in so many people? So if you answer yes, that would be a great source of courage. Then, um, then hopefully the, the Christian answer that we've studied from the Scripture today to the, this fear-courage dynamic that, that all people struggle with, hopefully this will be a small enticement for you to take Jesus' teaching seriously and, and to learn all you can from the people here at Vanguard who love you and want to help you understand. Okay, but I, but I don't want to confuse you. A relationship with God is, is not a means to, become, to becoming a courageous person, okay? Like, truthfully, and, and we, we sung about this earlier again, the, lo- the, uh, the love of the Lord is better than life, right? A relationship with God is not a, a means to the end of courage, to, to know the love of God is incomparably sweeter than to be able to, to get to the point where you can say about yourself, oh, I'm a courageous person now. To know the love of God is so much better. A relationship with God is not a means to the end of courage. It's just the opposite, in fact. God gives timid, would-be evangelists courage so, so they can share the love of God with those who never knew. God gives courage to church planners like, like you guys. So, so they can brave the endless uncertainties that surround young churches so they can be a beacon of God's love to their communities. Right, Vanguard? That's you guys. And, and God gives us courage as travelers through this barren wilderness of life just to show us he loves us. Just, to, just to, so that we can feel the, the tight grip of his arms around us. Courage is a means to the end of, of the, the infinite sweetness of, of a relationship with a loving God. So that's, that's what I hope is ultimately enticing to you if you're, considering, if you're here considering Christianity. The last thing I want to say is, um, my brothers and sisters, like if, if there is a fear struggle that just seems to nag you, um, I, I want to give you this simple exercise. It, it's very simple. You could do this with Sunday school kids, but I think it would, it would be a blessing, a blessed meditation for, for the most mature saints. Remember, fear is always measured by how much you exaggerate the problem, so you could do this exercise. Literally take out a piece of paper, open up to a blank page in your journal, and in the middle of the paper, just write down your problem in a word or a few sentences. And then literally around it, write Bible passages that contain the promises of God that relate to your situation. Not just references, but like literally write out the text of Scripture in, in, in full. And then add to that, in the spaces in between where the promises lie on the page, add to that short little notes that remind you of incidents and instances where God has already 
been faithful to you, carried you, and where you've seen him fight for you, okay? Literally on that paper, surround the statement of your problems with statements of faith in God and see if that doesn't help fill your heart with statements of faith so that you can say, I will not fear because my God is faithful. He is my father and he is fighting for me. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.